0: Maybe John himself has like got a bug and he's frozen. Or he's got audio problems. But then he should be typing something to say I can say something. It might be a tumor. Oh. It's not a tumor.
1: Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three day in person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site, or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgemo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5, and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 36 of the Adventures in Angular podcast. This week on our panel we have Joe Eames... Hey, everybody. Ward Bell. Hello. John Papa.
2: Hey, everyone.
1: I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Quick reminder, if you're into Rails or you want to support the show, go check out devchat.tv slash Kickstarter. This should come out like the last day of the campaign. So uh, We also have a special guest this week, and that is Julie Ralph. Hey,
3: guys.
1: Uh, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly, Julie?
3: Yeah, sure. My name's Julie. I am a dev at Google. And I work up in the Seattle office. And I work with the Angular team on testing. Specifically, I'm the author of Protractor, the end-to-end testing framework. And I also work on general code and continuous integration, health, and developer productivity for Angular and teams using Angular and teams using Angular at Google. What does
4: that larger charter mean? Cause that, that's, that's interesting. What do you do for outside of Protractor for productivity and health and all that?
2: Yeah, that's yeah, a ang- good question. Oh, Angular sorry. health sounds like, is Angular health like making sure Igor and Mishko get their exercise in?
3: <laughs> so there's a lot of setup and process that the Angular project itself has in terms of how it generates its own documentation and wow. how it tests itself. And so I do a lot of helping out with how that gets run using Travis and then connecting to services like Sauce Labs and BrowserStack to get actual browser VMs, how we report results, how we make sure that PRs that go through get test results in a reasonable amount of time, and reducing flakiness is one of the really big things that we're focusing on right now for that I like whole reducing
0: flakiness.
4: Wow, that sounds noble. How did you... S- I don't want to say stumble in, because I stumble into everything. How did you get into this game? Like before, you know, where did you come from, and how did you find this role uh, at Google?
3: I think stumbling would be fair. Uh, I've been at Google for about the past almost five years now, and I was working on one of the projects internally that was using Angular back in the 0.9 pretty early days. Before, it got really big and a lot of people knew about it and knew how to use it. And so back then, it was really easy to go get the attention of Igor and Mishko. And I was working on testing for this project and finding that the solutions back then for end-to-end testing, which was the Angular scenario runner, were really not having the full feature set that our team needed. And... Didn't support a lot of the things that I saw in other tests at Google, which were based on WebDriver and had native events and a lot more support for not having to specifically host files for testing on your server. So I went down and I talked with Mishko and Igor and Voita, and I said, "Hey, I would like to make this better. I'd like to make a more general solution for end-to-end testing." Uh, and I think they said, "Sure," and thought I would, you know, forget about it pretty soon. But I was really interested and ended up working on it and have been able to just keep doing that. So now I work pretty much full-time on Protractor and related projects.
4: That's an interesting trajectory. The very idea that you could su- you sort of be inspired by a problem and then go pitch it and take over, is that common in the culture?
3: I think so. And I think I definitely got lucky that it worked out that I'm able to be working on this full-time. But Google is very much one code base one engineering culture, and everything is open to everyone. So if you see a problem somewhere, you definitely can go and say, hey, if I have the bandwidth to fix this, will you help me out with it? And that's very, very supportive.
4: Well, that brings us to Protractor itself. And so those of us out here uh, sort of know it has something to do with end-to-end. Those of us who have tried end-to-end in the past have felt burn several times (laughs) uh, and think that that is just like it's hard enough to get anybody to test anything in the first place and oh my to deal with a dom and the real thing that's just got to be fraught with peril i'll get around to it someday maybe but you've been out there talking protractor people getting getting up and i know our experience of of fear has to be something you run into or dread, or whatever, uh, disgust. You have to have uh, encountered this and and feel that we might be missing an opportunity. So maybe you can tell us what it's like to kind of find that and address it.
3: Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, So end-to-end testing is terrible, in general. And I think one of my favorite things that someone said about Protractor was, hey, this is surprisingly painless. And that's my goal, is to make end-to-end testing surprisingly painless now. So end-to-end testing shows a lot of symptoms of all sorts of errors that happen all throughout your application. So I think one of the problems is that it often gets blamed for problems all through the stack. For example, when you're developing some sort of project, you probably have some way to set up a local instance of it so that you can mess with it on your own machine while you're developing without polluting the database somehow. If you have that set up really cleanly and that's very modular, then you can use that same sort of system when you're doing your end-to-end tests so that your tests don't go and pollute whatever database. But if you don't have that set up, it's going to be harder to set up your end-to-end tests. So that's a bigger problem than just testing, but it's something that can easily show up when you're finally trying to write those E-to-E tests. Uh, But beyond just those issues, most end-to-end tests, I would say that the industry standard for web page tests right now is using WebDriver, which is what Protractor does. So in the end, it's built on top of WebDriver. WebDriver is a tool that defines an API between tests and browsers, and then tries to implement those API actions, which are things like clicking on an element, getting the text from an element, etc., WebDriver is a standard for how those should be implemented and how, you know, all browsers should respond to them and they attempt to respond like a browser would respond to a native event. So actually clicking on it as opposed to just triggering a click event, there's some subtleties in there that would make it actually act differently like a real user clicked on it. So Projectors built on top of that, WebDriver has a limited API and often runs into issues where you get things like race conditions because the web page is slow or something else happens. So what Projector does is it's built specifically for Angular applications. And since we know more about a site, given that it's based on Angular, than we know about any generic page on the internet, we can do smarter things. So we have hooks inside Angular that Projector uses to ask, when is the page stable? And things like how could I find an element based on some binding strings bound to a string user, for example. So we use those hooks to try to make testing more stable and less flaky. And then Projector also has a whole command line runner, and that helps with getting WebDriver set up and running tests and getting good output from tests.
4: So help me clarify that. I'll tell you what, when I've used other tools, I usually end up sort of having to, I think you said it, but I want to know, I'm trying to script it. And usually the problem, one of the reasons I hate it end to end is that my scripts don't last very long before they're all broken. But it's like I'm trying to find the button with ID equals foo and da-da-da-da. And what you're saying is that Protractor allows me to script things in Angular terms and somehow. And and if that's so, what are kinds of the things that make my scripting less brittle, more functionally focused, make it easier for me?
3: Yeah, exactly. So if you have a page in Angular, we know a lot about what your template looks like, right? You probably have bindings using curly braces or the ng-bind directive and you probably have models in your forms using ng-model. So with Protractor, you can locate elements using either a string match for what the binding is or for what the model is. And this can be a lot more stable than using things like XPath selectors or CSS selectors that might change when you're just doing stylistic changes to your page. If you're changing what the ng model is bound to, you're probably actually changing some significant functionality that merits going in and modifying your test as well.
5: So, if you hear, if I heard you correctly, then what I could say
3: is instead of finding an
5: element or an ID or a class or anything like that using um, selectors, I could say go get me the model that bound this. Or I could even could I even do that with like a click? For example, say go uh, call this method on this particular model.
3: So you can do it with model. You can't actually do it with click right now. And we have had for a while thoughts about adding more ways of getting elements that are bound to certain events. So click and key press and those things. And we'll probably have a change that allows those selectors soon. And we're also thinking about what we want to do in the future for when Angular evolves to have new syntax in Angular 2, how we want to grab elements there.
5: Yeah, because today, when I use Protractor, and it's a very infantile use of it that I use, I grab things by model so I can set properties and, you know, say, enter my username, enter my order number, things like that. But then I have to go find the element to run, you know, click the button to do the search or click the button to do a save, for example. So is that still the model today with Angular 1.3, 1.4? And I have a follow-up question to that, too, but I want to hear your opinion on that first. Yeah, yeah, that's correct for now. Okay, and the the second side of that is I know the last time I went into this, it worked really, really well when I was writing Jasmine and using syntax for Jasmine with my tests to write the language for um, all my tests uh, with Protractor. But I was uh, at the time using Mocha quite a bit, and when I was doing Mocha, I seemed to be struggling through with a lot more. Is there a preferred framework, or does it matter what framework I use when I'm using Protractor?
3: So Protractor supports Jasmine and Mocha fairly well. And we also somewhat support Cucumber, although that's mostly community contributions and there are several known issues. And we actually have an arbitrary API for frameworks, so you can go in and, as long as you can hook into our framework API, add whatever custom framework you would like. Most of our tests are in Jasmine, and that is our primary use case. So we support both Jasmine 1.3 and Jasmine 2.1, which there's fairly significant differences between those. And we do have a uh, migration guide if you're interested in moving from 1.3 to 2.0. But a lot of work's been done with Jasmine for making sure that, for example, stack traces give sane line numbers and timeouts work properly. And we just don't have the bandwidth to do all that work for every framework. So I would say Jasmine's definitely the best supported and Jasmine 2.0 would be your best bet right now. And then Mocha is the next level of support there. And
5: the reason I kind of go down this road is that it's difficult, and like a word frames the question, it's difficult when you get into these realms to know what are all the players I need to be aware of. You know, we've mentioned WebDriver, Protractor, Jasmine, or Mocha, for example. Is there anything else somebody needs to learn about from concepts before they kind of jump in here?
3: You need to be able to use Node. Protractor is a Node program, so having some familiarity with that is useful And it's also worth noting that every test file that you give to Projector will be interpreted by a node. So you can do things like pull out helpers and use require to grab your helper files. Knowing about the browsers that you're testing on is also very helpful in terms of how you will debug and being able to use the developer tools.
4: Yeah, how you can debug your your end-to-end tests. Is Is that what you mean? Yeah.
3: Yeah, I mean, so being able to... We have a feature where you can pause in the middle of your test, and then you could go and, for example, on Chrome, open up the Chrome Devs tools and look at your application from there. So general knowledge that you probably have from debugging when you're developing outside of end-to-end tests, but that's also very helpful.
4: Got it. One of the things that it used to... In all serious apps, I usually have to sort of navigate to the point of interest from the entry point, and that means you know you know I have to put some script that's going to get me from screen to screen. Maybe I'm using uh, one of the routers, and that can really go awry because they can lose track of where it is. Is Angular aware of the routers? Is there something that makes it easier to sort of? pilot your way through to a place you want to be? Or do you suggest that there's a, a, an alternative way to arrange your tests so you don't have that problem?
3: So I think the best thing to do, if possible, is to make it so that you can navigate very close to the state that you want in your application by just going to a certain URL, right? So that means that you're encoding a lot of important information using an Angular router or such but I know that not all applications are set up that way. So you often do have situations where you have some sort of large before test block that will actually just be navigating to a certain location. And there's not really much that you can do about that if that's how a user would have to get to that state that you're testing anyway. One thing that can also be helpful is I've seen a lot of tests where they're doing a lot of Data hydration before every test. So that might mean something like I have to set up a account and set up a user before I can actually make my test run. Yeah. And often doing that through the UI is first of all, it's going to be slow and it introduces more places where you might get flakiness. So that's generally not the best way to do it. I think a good solution there is if you have an API, you can have Projector just go ahead and make an HTTP call to your API to get your users set up, et cetera. You don't have to go through the browser just because you can.
4: Ah, that gets into a sort of more general thing, a uh, question of, like, oftentimes your app is going to do something that is either going to leave bad traces behind or or invoke a service, like, charging your credit card that you really don't want it to do. And so you're trying to get as close to the real thing as possible, but you're going to have to fake some things out in order to make it realistic. There are ways to do that in Protractor, and how do I learn
3: about those? The primary way that we have to do this is using mock modules. So when you load an application, which is an Angular page, using Protractor, it actually has a step before Angular bootstraps itself, Where Protractor will load in any mock modules that you specify in your test, which means that those can override the modules that exist on the Angular page. So, for example, if you have a service which calls out to charge credit cards, you can override that service from your test without actually changing the website code at all. So that's mock modules. You can look for that in our API documentation, and we have some example tests that are using that in the repository. And yet
4: yet the rest of it would be the real app, I mean, the true end-to-end, but you would just be sort of swapping out that one little piece.
3: Exactly. Ah. Another technique is kind of what I was referring to earlier, though, about having a good environment set up for development, where when you're manually poking around, you're not making some charges to a credit card, right? So you probably want a more general way to set up an environment that's not messing with important
1: data. At what stage do you recommend that people start using something like Protractor instead of, you know, getting in and writing their unit tests?
3: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think that there is a tendency to think like, oh, I've heard that test driven development is great. So I want to write unit tests First, which I love, and I want to write end to end tests first, which I don't really think makes sense. I think that a lot of the benefit of end to end tests comes from replacing a manual script that you would have to go through to verify to yourself that, yeah, this site is working. So I think if you reach the point where you're doing some sort of manual verification that a page is working more than twice, it's probably about time to start writing an end to end script that'll do that for you instead. I think that there's a lot of benefit to getting some sort of end-to-end test set up, a really simple one, fairly early, once you can actually have a site and load up a page. Because then you're kind of forced to have that good separation of environments when you're developing so that you have a way to set up an environment that you can run your end-to-end test against. And once you have that baked in from the beginning of your development process, it's a lot easier than trying to create one once you have a whole bunch of infrastructure already set up. So a really simple test like that would be something that maybe just goes to your homepage and verifies that there is a navigation bar and if a user is logged in, the user's name exists. So something really simple, really small test. But from that test passing, you know that your front end is serving, you know that it's hooked up to your back end. however... You know that there's no terrible mistakes in your process.
4: So imagine I did that, which that sounds great. And by the way, I think that's how people should at least lay down the baseline for unit tests, too, because they want you know, to do something. And I just say, hey, just get it so it works at all. But, so, so imagine we did that, and then we were able to hire you, which I know we can't. And we said, hey, here's a page. You know, I'd like to be able to write some tests over it. How long would it take you, like somebody really knew it, to carve out a couple of tests that would just give me a good sense that that page was behaving the way I want to? How does that time compare to writing a battery of unit tests against the functionality? that lay behind that page?
3: I think that how long does it take the user to interact with your page? You know, probably a couple of minutes and ideally when you're doing a projector test it should be that time that it takes a user to interact with the page plus a little bit of time to go in and look up the template to see how you want to locate those elements so you know, maybe maybe multiply that time by a factor of 10 or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably a bit optimistic but I think that's kind of the goal for how simple writing these tests should be.
4: I see. So if I had a one-minute scenario, you're saying I could cover that scenario in 10 minutes, I could, should be able to write a, a protractor test for that scenario in 10 minutes. I know that's, that sounds aggressive to me. That would be fantastic. But you're saying it's at least order of magnitude around that?
3: I think so. And I think, you know, this is assuming that you have The basic infrastructure set up already.
4: Right, right, right. Like, you know, once I learn it and once I learn Protractor, I'm not talking about learning that, but but, see, I have the sense that it's just so forbidding that I'd be spending hours to do the simplest thing. And you're saying it doesn't have to be that bad.
3: Yeah, I I think that a lot of that time also comes from debugging the test if it doesn't work, right? So if you have a setup where you can pretty quickly run your tests, you can use things like in Jasmine. There's the ability to do a focused it block, which will just run one file. And I believe in Mocha, it's um it dot only to just run that one test. So while you're developing your test, you can just run that one over and over and make sure it's working. And, and you one should of always fo- have
0: a commit hook that doesn't let you check that in. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> oh,
4: my then, tests run so fast when I have a dot only. Thing.
3: <laughs> Look, I reduced test time to like one minute.
2: Exactly. Yeah, you know, I got to say, I feel like an utter failure right now because ten minutes to write a one-minute scenario test, and I think what I've done in Protractor has been more like two to three hours <laughs> writing the ones that I've had to go through. And usually, most of my time is spent not only figuring out the templates and which things to actually grab, but also it seems to me there's there's a there's a couple different ways to use Protractor to obtain the templates you know which which syntax which API should i be using because um, just like angular there's a few different APIs to actually interact with different elements
3: so yeah that's definitely true and you could probably go through and just use css selectors for finding elements and have a pretty good time i think that css selectors and finding elements by what they're bound to are the two most useful ones and then ID, element ID is good if you have IDs already in your page or if there's some things that you know are going to be unique and you just want a very certain way of grabbing that one. unique. Yeah,
2: maybe some of the reason my team's had issues with that is because we're trying to do it the Angular way, I guess you almost would say. You know, go find it by models when sometimes maybe just getting an ID is easier. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So I, I just like a normal developer, I usually try to make the framework do what I want and bend it to my will. I've got a related question where, is this bad? Is this good? Is this something you see a lot? Where I'm using Protractor to actually crank up my website and do a little bit of performance testing. Obviously, I take off the startup time of Selenium and WebDriver, but is that something you've seen people do out there?
3: Yeah, I think it depends on what type of performance testing you're looking at. So WebDriver introduces a lot of latency in between when you request an action. So for example, let's say a click action and when that action actually occurs. So if you're trying to do sort of really small benchmarks in your browser, where you're looking at, you know, 10s and hundreds of millisecond level performance, that's probably going to get swamped by the latency that WebDriver is introducing. And you're probably going to Get pretty noisy data that's not super useful. On the other hand, if you're kind of looking at how long does it take a user to navigate here and fill some stuff out, you know, is it 10 seconds or 20 seconds? Then you're probably getting some fairly useful information in terms of how long it takes your page to load and how long it takes requests to go through your backend and come back and log you on, for example. The Angular team is working on a project called Benchpress. Yes. For doing those very small micro benchmarking. And that actually uses Protractor essentially just to open up the browser and then report information back from it. So it's using it just to get an instance of the browser and then the actual performance is all done via JavaScript on the page itself.
4: You know, one of the things that we talked about is, is that there tends to be a lot more setup just to even get to where you want to point the test, um, than there would be in normal unit and integration tests. And I would, ex- I would expect that the, the more of an integration test you have, the more setup there is usually. And now you introduce these latencies with the test is running over here and it has to talk to the browser over there. So there's the sort of usual rule when you're in Jasmine or Mocha that you have one expectation. Per it, one expectation per test. I have the sense that that's not terribly efficient. Is there a different style of writing tests when you're writing end to end tests? And if so, how do I learn about that?
3: You know, I think a lot of that is up to your team and exactly how you prefer to write things and how important the time that the test suite takes is to you versus how important it is that each spec be completely hermetic, for example. Some teams really care about being able to run each spec out of context of everything else, and some teams are okay with maybe a file being able to run out of context of the other files, but each individual test inside the file might depend on things that come before it. These are hard questions to answer. And one of the things that we've been working on internally to Google is a sort of style guide with suggestions for how you might set up and write end to end tests with projector. And we would like to make that available more widely and also available to comment on and change because I think that there's a lot of teams out there with a lot of good experience. And honestly, this is one of the areas where I'm writing the tools and I work with people who use the tools, but probably the heavy users are the best people to answer that.
4: That would be so good you know what it would be kind of good to do a sort of have a play by play of of that just watching somebody two people at work trying to build some tests some end to end tests and sort of see what the what the motions are it just it just feels to me that the mechanics of doing that seem like they would be different than what I'm used to going through when I'm writing unit tests but I don't know that that's true, but it just feels different and that'd be great to have that's a suggestion for you. Given that I'm talking about this discrepancy, what kinds of things are great for end to end tests uh, and what are really not? What should you just leave for different kinds of tests? Where do you say that boundary is?
3: I think in general, if you can verify a behavior in a smaller test, that's probably better. So by a smaller test, I mean a unit test or maybe some sort of functional test where if you're testing your backends, you just hit your API directly. You don't have to test everything all the way through the browser UI. So if you're testing like business logic in your application with, depending on how I fill out this form, when do I get errors and when do I not get errors? For every single corner case, that's definitely unit test style behavior. Do you want to have one end-to-end test that looks at, hey, if I get an error, does the user get any sort of red bar error message? Yeah, I think that's more appropriate for an end-to-end test. So not worrying about corner cases and business logic very much, but looking at a user script. How would a user actually interact with the page and does it work as expected?
1: Yeah, my experience with end-to-end tests has been that usually there's some process that's critical to the application running. And so you want to test at least the happy path on that just to make sure that, you know, for example, people can place an order that credit cards get processed as much as you can test that anyway. So, you know, if you're using some payment processor and they have a a sandbox, then it, you know, you may have it even run all the way to the sandbox and back. Or you may mock that part out and just make sure that it's making the right calls. But it's that kind of stuff where testing is a game of return on investment and since unit tests and integration tests are much easier to write and you can get a lot of value out of those with not a lot of effort and then you decide where you're going to get payoff on the acceptance tests or the end-to-end tests is my experience so that's where you you know you test the critical paths and make sure that they work because without it you're up a creek yeah
3: that's that's absolutely i would agree with that
4: Julie are there some is there a case study or have you seen somebody using protractor in a way that you uh, on a project that was very effective and can you sort of describe what they what kinds of tests they were using there um what they asked those tests to do for them
3: Yeah so I think we've got some internal teams that have fairly good testing stories and I think that the big pieces of advice are using page objects to organize your tests so for those who aren't familiar with them Page object is pretty much just a pattern for writing an end-to-end test that says that you should have a helper file for each view of your website that lists how to find the elements and simple actions on them. So for a login form, it would probably have a method to find the username, find the password, and actually fill it out. And the idea is that then your test uses that page object helper file so that your test file looks really clean and your it block will have a method that's like, on my login page, dot login, pass in a username, pass in a password, done. So that your test files are very descriptive. So I think heavy use of the page object pattern is one thing that really helps. And then the types of things that are tested are, like was said earlier, critical user stories, making sure that users can log in. There are different levels of users in this application, so making sure that the user has the right authentications to see the pages that they are supposed to see and not see the pages that they're not supposed to see. And these are user scripts that are fairly easy to test and that they don't take forever. It's not filling out a 200-line form and testing every permutation of that, but they're really important for the application, that those happen correctly. It's really important that someone with permission to see the account level settings can see them and someone without it can't.
4: Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any horror stories for us? Everybody loves a horror story.
3: (laughs) Nothing specific, but I, I see a lot of people trying to test all sorts of permutations of forms. So things that I think really are better in unit tests. I think a really big red flag is if you have logic in your end-to-end tests. so for example if you have a bunch of if statements or if you have a for loop in your end-to-end tests you really want to take a look at that and make sure that that's not something you should be testing in a unit test
4: so what's happening in protractor what are the are there new releases coming down and and then i want to ask you about how protractor relates to version 1.x versus 2.
3: So I'm really glad you asked. We will be doing a protractor 2.0 release today. This is really not exciting. It's a very small change, but we're introducing a breaking change that we think will probably affect a decent number of users. So in respect to semantic versioning, we are doing a 2.0 release. This breaking change is basically changing the way that locating elements returns a promise. Right now, If you try to locate an element, that object, which we call an element finder, is a promise which resolved to itself. And that's not allowed by the new promise spec, and it was causing problems in a lot of areas. So we've removed that. It doesn't remove any functionality, but we think it might break several users. So that's why we've made this version 2.0. So look for that later today.
1: And just to be clear, what you're saying is... is We're fixing promise functionality 2.0 in Protractor doesn't correspond in any way to 2.0 in Angular.
3: That's true. So, yeah, this is just a major version bump for semantic versioning. It has nothing to do with Angular 2 or Jasmine 2 or version 2 of any other project. We are, however, working on support for Angular 2. And I think that the goal for this is to make the process transition as seamless as possible so that if you have an application that you're upgrading in the future from Angular 1.x to 2.0, you can keep your end-to-end tests pretty similar and use that to help check that everything in the migration has gone forward. Again, this is still a work in progress. We don't know exactly what this will look like, but in the same way that there's hooks in Angular 1 that Protractor uses, To help stabilize your tests and find elements, there will be hooks in Angular 2 that Protector uses.
4: So you're pretty involved then in the design process for 2.0 to make sure that it has that testability built into it.
3: Yeah, and if you go and look at the Angular 2 GitHub page, we've got an issue tracking list, and you can follow along if you're really interested.
1: Very cool. Well, I think we're about at the end of the time that we uh, usually go to. In fact, I think we're a little beyond it. So uh, let's go ahead and get to the picks. John, do you want to start us off with picks?
2: Sure. I guess I can do that. So one of my picks and the theme of testing is there's this cool library out there written by some anonymous author named BardJS, uh, and it's my (laughs) technical tip. I am well known for not enjoying writing tests at all, and uh, BardJS is a nice test helper library which helps you write tests with much less friction uh, using Jasmine or Mocha against Angular, and it's actually written by Ward Bell. It's up in NPM and Power. So it's my pick is uh, if you don't know what BARD is, once you start writing tests, start writing them without it, then go check out BARD and then see how much time it saves you because it's pretty darn awesome. Hmm.
1: Joe Eames doesn't like tests either.
0: No, I'm not really a big fan of tests. (laughs) (laughs) He said
4: sarcastically. He said sarcastically as he has courses on the subject and strong opinions.
0: You know, I almost feel like angry that ward and you guys are doing the testing course on angular like that should have been my course
4: well we're going to send you to the anger management course John.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no that's totally awesome that you guys are doing the pool site is it out yet or are you guys still building it no you're we just kicking, still kicking us in the tail to build it yeah <laughs> get
2: it done guys come on Ward and I are going through great pains to make sure it's really, really awesome, so it's, it's still coming out. But we do have a play-by-play coming out, which is a two-hour video of Ward and I struggling mightily to write tests right in front of your eyes. Oh, that's awesome. I love
4: that. It was fun. We usually have fun, and that's part of what play-by-play is about. We're trying to bring the fun back into this, and and I think Julie's going to bring the fun into end-to-end testing if there is fun to be had.
3: I don't know. I promised uh, surprising painlessness, not fun. Oh well,
0: painless is more fun than pain.
2: Well, see, I was thinking surprisingly painless end-to-end testing. You could call it
0: speed. Ward, that statement is not at all true, according to a movie that recently came out on in the theaters. Oh goodness. Oh my.
1: Well, All right. Uh, Ward, picks.
4: I have a pick. I r- read an article recently about teaching and what makes for good teachers and what makes, how do we know and how does that relate to how teachers uh, in our schools are recognized or, and, you know, are they even recognized for the things that seem to be working? And so this is an article in The Guardian and in particular it focuses on this guy named Doug Lemoff, who videotapes teachers who, first they went out and they sort of said, forget what everybody's saying about these teachers. You know, where are the dramatic differences happening, especially in schools with um, poor performing kids? And then let's just go videotape them. Let's not just talk about rewarding. Let's go videotape uh, those teachers and see what they're doing and see what, what, you know, what are they, you know, what kinds of things that make them different in the classroom. And this has led to a fascinating book that seems to be getting some traction out there uh, by this guy doug Lamoff and his book which i will put in the link notes that is my tip go read that because what i'm thinking is that 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 will also help any of us who have to share information with our colleagues or do workshops i mean it, you know it's not it's not just for kids it's for us or at least that's what i thought so i'll put that in the notes
1: awesome joe you ready with the pick
0: i am all right so uh as I mentioned on a previous show, I went to a board gaming convention last weekend, which was completely awesome. Awesome way to take a vacation, spend three days all day long playing board games. And one of the board games that I played was called Colt Express, which actually has these little like cutout trains. And you have little guys that are on the trains and you're trying to rob the train before the other people that are you're playing against rob the train. And it's super fun, super easy to learn. And because it has little diagrams and uh, your little cutout figures, it's actually really fun to watch and play. And you get to punch and shoot the other people, which was (laughs) quite enjoyable. (laughs) So I thought it was just a great game. And just very unique. You know, there's not like an actual board, but it's not quite miniatures. It's actually like a train, a real cutout train that you have your little figures on. And they move around on the train, and it's it's super fun. So I'm going to pick Cult Express. Very cool.
1: I've just started getting into ng-book, and I've I've really been enjoying it. Um, I've kind of dabbled in Angular and built stuff in Angular on my own, but I wanted something that was a little bit more formalized, and it's pretty good. So I'm gonna go ahead and just pick that, and I guess that's a pro tip as well.
2: I think I think what's cool about ng-book too is worth saying to people is when I first bought ng-book, I did it through like the Amazon Kindle reader option, but I think the better way to go is to actually go right to their website because the way I understand it, if you go right to their website to buy NG Book, you get all the updates. So anytime new version of Angular comes out, you get a new version as well.
4: I can confirm that. I've been getting regular updates since I've bought the first version of it six or eight months ago.
2: That's awesome. So, yeah, don't make a mistake like I did and buy it off Amazon.
4: Yeah, go direct. Go to the source.
2: (laughs) Nice. (laughs) All right, Julie, do you have a
1: pick, or you can give us a couple of picks if you've got them.
3: Yeah, I got two quick things. So the first is the Chrome DevTools State of the Union is out. The video is not up yet, but the annotated slide deck is, and the video should be out probably by the time you're hearing this podcast. And so that's a really nice way to just see an overview of new features that you might not have noticed or tried out, and they're doing a lot of really cool stuff. So DevTools State of the Union. And then the second thing is... I believe that when this comes out, it will be the first day of spring. And I did some digital spring cleaning, which made me super happy. So I went through and I unsubscribed from old mailing lists and I cleaned up the GitHub issues and I deleted things I didn't care about. And it's great. And I think we spend a lot of time accumulating things that are giving us notifications and things that we're following and Sometimes you just need to go and purge out the old stuff you don't care about so you can focus on the important things. So go do some digital spring cleaning. Awesome.
4: Wow, that's a frightening prospect, man. You should see my garage. (laughs) And his digital garage.
3: (laughs) You should see my inbox.
4: (laughs) Oh, you subscribe to Inbox 3000 like I do? Well, I, for one, want to say that I am so glad you came on, Julie. I've been really looking forward to the show, part because I like your work and the way you present, and part because I think that this end-to-end stuff is so scary and you make it seem less scary to me.
3: Thank you. That is the goal, and we definitely hope to keep making it even better.
1: All right. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for coming, Julie.
3: Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com and sign up today.